So if you want to see who has power in any given society, at any given historical moment, find the ones who are shutting the press down. Find the ones who are demonizing those who speak with a voice that they cannot tolerate. Find those who are silencing those who think differently from them. That is where you will find the tyrants. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. In today's episode, the final one of 2022, it's with Peter Hughes, the author of A History of Love and Hate in 21 Statues. Now, Peter appeared on the pod in December 2021, so you can catch up with that conversation if you like what you hear today. I wanted to get Peter back on because he's a relatively new entrant to the history game, having written his first history book, having been both a philosopher and psychologist. And he brings that very much to his book. With that in mind, I wanted to see what he makes of the world of history today and of society more generally. Peter uses historical events to help see where we are and looked at Confucius, the 6th century BC Chinese philosopher, the French Revolution, Frederick Douglass, the statue of Athena at Palmyra and the recent death of the Queen. And they all help to frame his view on where we are today. I always enjoy talking to Peter. He provides a unique view and certainly gets you thinking. As you may sense throughout our conversation, I'm keen to keep an optimistic view of the world. And I'm not sure Peter is quite on the same page with me on that one. But you guys make up your own mind. If you want to get hold of either of us, you can. I've put links in the show notes. Included are also links for books and papers that Peter mentions, including a link to the PDF of The Great Fear by the French historian Georges Lefebvre. And so therefore you get a free book out of this as well. If you're enjoying these pods, please do subscribe and review or rate if you can. Coming up, I've got Joanna Hickson on Henry VII and Henry VIII, Mark Turnbull on the trial and execution of Charles I, and Saul David on the Zulu War, plus many, many more. In the meantime, I'll hand you over to me, talking with Peter Hughes. Peter Hughes, welcome back. It's so fantastic to have you back. It's been a year since since you've joined and I wanted to get you on because you you had written a history of love and hate in 21 statues and this is a book um I think it was your book your first book that involved a lot of history because obviously these statues feature historical figures and I wanted to get you on because it's now been a year since that book's come out and um we're a year on in the sort of culture wars as it were and history is is at the forefront of those culture wars. Um, so I was keen to get you back to, to have a chat about that. Um, but as I say, welcome back on. Yeah, that's great. I'm very pleased to be here. And thank you very much for your invitation. Much appreciated. Um, so I thought we could kick off with, well, we were just talking before we started recording, which was, I'm annoyed I hadn't recorded because it was all, the listeners missed out, but I'm sure we can we can have a really good chat now. Um, but we're going to start off talking a bit about Confucius, who was one of your um, one of your, the statues in your book. Yeah, that's correct, and 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 I think that the 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 point to make really in the year that's passed since the book came out, which of course was about 21 stories of statue destruction from a Shepshut right through to the present day, but what it was really about was about collapse individual, collective, social, civilizational collapse and, and how easy it is that as human beings, we become polarized and, and, and we become divided and how depressing this eternal spectacle, this eternal recurrence of the same as Nietzsche would have called it, this eternal recurrence of, of, of this madness that, that infects the human spirit, um, that we insist on demonizing and, and purging and silencing those with whom we with whom we disagree and 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 of course confucius is a really interesting place to start because you know the statue of of confucius that i talk about in the book was the one in khufu uh, which was uh, and it was at uh, the confucianism ancestral home and and uh, and the red guards turned up uh, in the autumn of uh, of 1966 when when incidentally the cultural revolution was was already underway the first teacher 
had been uh, uh, beaten to death with a spiked club and her body thrown into a trash can by um, female students at an all-girls, elite all-girls school. I think there's some lessons in that for the modern day. And uh, and, uh, and I think that, uh, and uh, and the Red Guards turned up at Confucius's place. And, and obviously under the instigation of Mao, because he 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 felt that the young were, were fervent and impressionable and they made good foot soldiers. Of course, he had to rein them in eventually, but... But, uh, but what they did at Khufu, they, 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 they burst into the, the compound, they destroyed a lot of statues and, and monuments, they, they, they dug up the, the, some dead bodies of, of Confucius's ancestors, they, they hung them from trees, some of them not so uh, remotely dead, some of them quite recently dead, and one of the attendees complained about the stench. Um, and then they uh, grabbed the statue of Confucius and and dragged it through the streets. They they put a dunce's cap on his head and they made those who followed Confucius or they suspected of adhering to his teachings to follow the the the, uh, the statue and be humiliated along the way. And and as became one during the Cultural Revolution, wherein their placards denouncing them for whatever imaginary and fantastical crimes they'd been committed of. And and eventually the statue of Confucius was was cast onto a onto a roaring fire. And 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 there's so many things that are both depressing and 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 pertinent about that. Really, there was a um, a Chinese American society and uh, association in Greater New York who um, uh, some of them were old enough to have come to America and fled the, the Cultural Revolution and and uh, and were seeing what was happening in America now in terms of the demonization of those with unpalatable thoughts, the heretics who don't subscribe to whatever dominant ideology is, is trading through the, the, what has become known as the mainstream media or, 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 or the, the, what is an ever-narrowing Overton window of, of acceptable views. And, and they said, we lived through this, they said. You know, we, we lived through the Cultural Revolution. We can see what is happening. And we don't want, we don't want our children to be segregated by race. We don't want our children to be segregated and hierarchized in their ability and suffering according to immutable characteristics like the color of their skin or where they were born or or their sexual orientation we, we just believe in merit and and that's why we came to america we 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 wanted to follow what we believed was the american dream and and of course there's despite bad what's happening to the united states at the moment you don't get many people going in boats or crashing through borders to get into china and uh, uh, or, or into Russia. So I, I think that that, that um, their their warnings really we should have, we should heed their warnings because they've they've lived through this and they can see what we are doing to ourselves. And there was a remarkable memoir written by a survivor, I guess, of the of the Cultural Revolution, a woman called Ray Yang, and she emigrated to the United States, and um, and uh, she wrote this memoir called Spider Eaters. And, and a couple of things are really noticeable about that memoir. The first thing was she was in an elite school, I think in Beijing. She was a member of the elite. But there's, very a, theme. Then, there's a theme developing here. There is a, definitely a theme. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets worse, okay? This is this is the uh, <laughs> this is the nice bit where we still have hope. But okay. it's not finished, okay? We, that may well have evaporated. But hopefully Listeners, we... I'm the voice of hope in this conversation, okay, just yeah. so you're aware. I will try and find some hope. And there will be some hope. Yeah, and there is. But... Yeah. but but ever the, the 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 light is ever dimming, you know, and um, and and I think and she said she called the book Spider Eaters, and she said because we must learn from the Cultural Revolution, and 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 the metaphor is that once people ate spiders who were poisonous, and they got they got sick, you know, and so we must learn from that. We must not eat the same spiders again. By which she means we must learn from the intolerance and the purging and the the struggle sessions of the Cultural Revolution. We must not repeat that. Um, but going back to the point I was making about her, she was part of an elite school, but she was also resentful that she wasn't quite getting the recognition that 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 she believed that 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 she was that she deserved. And this is a and this is a really uh, familiar pattern because what we're really seeing, we saw it in in in, in the Cultural Revolution, and we're seeing it now, is that what uh, the famous uh, uh, writer Christopher Lash called the, the revolt of the elites. Um, these are elite discourses, you know, the mass of ordinary people just want to get on with their lives, be kind to people, um, you know, not see colour, you know, just treat everybody the same, 
help people to get on with their lives as best as they're able to be accepting of of, of diversity, you know, of sexual orient diversity and sexual orientation, of, of diversity and identity. And, and we are a remarkably humane and, and tolerant country. I'm speaking now to us, not just as the West generally, but in terms of the UK. I remember Andrew Marr at the end of his series on, on the history of, of Britain, he said, and one of the last points he made in that, we should, each of us who were born on this island, be eternally grateful that this, this is where we landed, because there are many, many more horrific places to, to live than this. And we, we are, and, and it's, very easy now to to demonize the 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 our values and who we are as a country because of you know some of what we did when we were an imperial power you know and and uh, but my god we didn't have to uh, 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 and haven't achieved an awful lot of very benign and and very transformative things not just for our own country but but really for for the entire world many of the the values and institutions that we exported um, countries all over the world have benefited from that and but uh, but going back to to Ray Yang at this point so she was a member of the elite and, and that's what we're seeing now we are seeing a, a revolt of the elites and 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 this is something that's that's actually very very common because um I don't know if you're familiar with a historian uh called Peter Turchin I think that's pronounced he he developed a, a theory called Clio cliodynamics, Clio cliodynamics, which is trying to put some science into to history. And he was looking at how societies, you know, collapse. And and he took a concept from the great, uh, brilliant uh, uh, 14th century Islamic philosopher Ibn Khaldun, and uh, uh, and Asabia, uh, Asabia, and 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 what he means is that. It's like an energy that a society has and a community has when it has real social cohesion, you know, when when the divisions between the elites and those lower down the, 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 the social hierarchy are less virulent and, and less large than they, they become as societies at, at advance. And and um, and uh, and he, he said it's really the capacity, he said, of a of a social group for collective action. Well, you don't need to look very far to see that a sabia in the West is in our own society is really in decline. And he made the point that, that when a Sabia is, is strong, when we are competing against external enemies, the, 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 the Asabia uh, is very strong within our society. And when we, when we are competing up against ourselves, when we start div getting divided and fighting each other, fighting ourselves, then that collapses uh, uh, and that declines. And that's when societies are apt to, to, to collapse. That's when elites descend into factionalism and, and because they're all competing really for scarce resources, resources of attention, financial resources, career resources. I mean, to give you but one example in the United States, there is now uh, four or five law graduates for every law job and those jobs will be declining. What are these elites going to do? Christopher Lash predicted this. Peter Turchin predicted it. And if you only need to look at history and to see what happens when elites get divided from the mass of the people and they start fighting among themselves. So to give you an example, you know, at its at its um, at its uh, uh, a peak, really, the the richest one percent of Romans in the Roman Empire were maybe ten to to twenty times richer, really, than than the average Roman. But but uh, but in the late kind of Roman Empire, you know, that exceeded a hundred to one hundred and fifty times wealthier. And uh, and then of course the elites start start fighting among themselves and. And uh, and I think well, that's, that's certainly that's the truth in that's that's the case in today's society, isn't it? And that's exactly that's yeah. exactly what's happening now. And and uh, and so if you look, for example, at, at Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, and and so many elite, uh, particularly elite progressives, have said, "No, I want nothing to do with this." It's not because they're frightened of being cancelled, or you know, there's no chance of them being cancelled off Twitter. But what they don't like is that they can no longer cancel others. Yeah, that they can no longer be the ones doing the purging. They can no longer be the ones forcing those with whom they disagree uh, to put their little placards around their necks and, and endure their struggle sessions as indeed is, is, is appropriate. And, and, uh, and but, this but, but Peter, sorry to interrupt you, but the people who are, um, uh, and you see it in the historical, in the history world in, on, on the Twitter, is that a lot of people... Are saying that they're going to leave Twitter because of Musk, as you say. But actually, are they leaving? Because if you take Twitter away from a lot of historians, yeah. and and I, and I mean this in the nicest possible way to any future historian who wants to come on, um, you take away their voice, and they don't want to lose that, do they? 
Well, well, this is this is the key division. The division within and the debate on free speech really is is is, is divides into two, which is and and I'll go into some of the historical roots of this really because we started with the Cultural Revolution, which of course was a was a, a prohibition of proscribed speech and and uh, and uh, and the regime was uh, tyrannical, you know, and and remains so, you know, to um, to this day and and um, and in uh, in the debate on free speech, the key conflict really is between elitist or egalitarian versions of free speech. So the egalitarian version of free speech might go back to the ancient kind of Greek idea of parousia, which is uninhibited speech, right? The elitist version says, you can only say what we permit you to say. So in other words, we will shrink the Overton window to the point where we control what it is that you can and can't say. And, uh, and so within that, you either see Elon Musk as a, as a demon of hate speech, or you see him as somebody who is trying to un, and, and remind us that the foundation of our society is on freedom of expression, our ability to have opposing views. Let me give you an example. When the Queen died, there was a Carnegie Mellon professor, Uju Anya, and she made she tweeted, may, the, may her suffering be unspeakable. May the Queen die in agony. I and saw course, this, and it, it was just... This was within hours of her death. Yeah, within hours of the queen dying, right? And, and, and we're not, there's not, that's no exaggeration, listeners. No exaggeration, right? And, okay, so we can listen to what Ujo Anya says and we can say, that's appalling, but we must defend our right to say it. We have to, because the whole point about defending free speech is you defend views that you find distasteful. There is no merit in defending views that you agree with. It's like at the start of my History of Love and 1821 Statues, the very introduction to that, I, I, I quote so, uh, a verse from, from one of the Gospels, and, and uh, um, as a humanist, I have to say, not as a, a believer, but, the, but, the, but I'm, I'm looking at the psychological and, 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 and philosophical and political truth in this, really, where Jesus sits down and says, you want, you want rewards for loving people who love you. You think that there's any merit, that there is any virtue in that, on the contrary, he said, you only get rewards when you love people who hate you and wish you ill. And, and we need to remember that. And that's the truly egalitarian vision of free speech. And, and, um, and we should remember it. I mean, we only need to look, you know, we only need to look at the history books. Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist who, who was born at the beginning of the 19th century in 1818, freed himself from slavery in 1838 you know, became a prolific writer or three autobiographies and became really a, a, a figurehead for the abolitionist movement and, and, and remained so, and for the civil rights movement. And he said, slavery, he said, cannot tolerate free speech. He knew, he said, he said he called the right of free speech a very precious one, he said, especially to the oppressed. Because, and, and you go forward, Gandhi called, called freedom of expression and association the two lungs, he called them, through which we breathe. In, in apartheid, you know, you had um, you had uh, the great anti-apartheid activist Nadine Gordimer saying, you know, no social system, she said, in which a tiny minority must govern without consent over a vast majority can afford to submit any part of control of communication. So what she's saying is it's the elites that want to control communication because then they can keep the mass of people under oppression. In that case, it was the white elite in South Africa. Wherever you go. We have to remember what Rosa, Rosa Luxemburg said, is that the freedom to think is always an exclusively freedom for the one who thinks differently, not for the one who thinks the same as us. So if you want to see who has power in any given society, at any given historical moment, find the ones who are shutting the press down. Find the ones who are demonizing those who speak with a voice that they cannot tolerate. Find those who are silencing those who think differently from them. That is where you will find the tyrants. And they don't always come, you know, with swastikas and moustaches and, and Nazi salutes. That's not how the tyrants come. They can come with a benign face. They can come with all the institutions of the world behind them and saying, look, we have to protect people from hate speech. We have to be kind. We have to prescribe those who will say things that we dislike and can cause harm to others. Look at the online safety bill that's currently going. I was going about to mention that. Yes. What's the phrase in that? They want to prescribe speech that is legal, but harmful. 
This is insane. Who defines harm? Who defines harm? Uh, well, worrying, worryingly, it'll be the rather low quality standard of politicians we've got in, in this country. Yeah, but even they, even they will not have true control. It'd be those who control the cultural conversation. Because even if a politician wants to say something, what is a politician's greatest nightmare? What is a historian's greatest nightmare? What is any cultural cultural or political figure's greatest? Being shamed on Twitter, being demonized, being ostracized, being exiled outside the city gates. I've detected to Peter, I've detected in the last sort of 18 months or so, there is pushback. Okay, so so I think everyone went a bit crazy over COVID maybe, and there was a lot more huge numbers who were willing to suppress, as you say, views that were unpalatable to probably the majority of Twitter is probably center left, left. Um, and that, and that, and I think there's been a steady pushback where people are being a little bit more reasonable now. Do you, do you think that I'm being completely deluded by saying that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because, <laughs> but I've detected. I mean, I haven't. I, I, this, this is the hope, this, right? We, you yeah. know, we, we have a future to build. We have children. We have grandchildren. We've got to yeah. leave some kind of a world behind, you know, that that is habitable. And uh, and and, but no, I I think uh, you know that. I mean, there obviously have been moments in history. There's always been 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 purges, you know, on our on our freedom to, to say the things that we want. In 496 AD, Pope Gregory I issued, you know, the first index of forbidden books, you know. 1555, Mary has an index, Queen Mary has an index of forbidden literature. We can go through the entirety of the history of any given civilization and we will find periods of openness and periods of closure. But, but are you I'm, an absolutist on free speech? Well, uh, what does an absolutist mean? I guess the, the freedom... First amendment in the United States isn't absolutist. You know, it's not. I mean, you can't, you know, if Vuju Anya, to give her an example, say the Queen was alive, she'd said, I want the Queen to die in unspeakable agony. Um, I have guns and bullets at my house. Um, please come and collect them. I can send grenades over to you wherever you are in the world. Well, that's prescribed, right? Yeah. Because because that is actually going to the limit where free speech becomes actually a, a direct incitement to violence. OK. Um, and uh, and And of course, that's you know, we have to draw a line at that. But let's look at the great. Um, what about uh, racist language? So, sorry? Racist well, again, language. What do we mean by racist language? Let, let's look at this for a start. Now, there's a, a great study done in about 2019 um, by Dan Gilbert and a few psychologists at Harvard University. And and the, the paper was the psychological paper. I think it was 2019, could have been 2018. And the paper was called uh, Prevalence Induced Concept Change. And And what he sought to prove was that the more the, the the less prevalent a given phenomena becomes, the more we expand the concept of it, so it looks as if there's no difference. Now that's quite technical. So let me just give you an example of that. So he showed some participants um, some uh, threatening pictures of threatening and non-threatening faces, and they had to decide. I think they went through about a thousand iterations of this. So they had to decide which faces were threatening and which faces were non-threatening. And and as the experiment progressed. He reduced the number of of uh, of threatening faces, okay, but the people expanded their concept. The participants expanded their concept of what they believed to be a threatening face, so it looked as if there was no difference in the sample. So what that uh, and he did a similar thing on on green and on blue and purple dots, and there were a number of examples he did. But how that catches itself out in practical terms, really, when it comes to racism and discrimination, is this. The less racist we become, the more we expand the concept of racism. So it looks as if not only is there no difference, are we making no progress whatsoever? But to use the words of the anti-racist, so-called anti-racist writer, Ibram X. Kendi, that we're in stage four metastatic, you know, cancer level of racism. Right. And uh, and we do the same with with in, in gender ideology. What should have happened in 2015? Where all the campaigns that had been that had campaigned, and I include my, included myself in this, even as a straight man, I'd campaigned for years for the right for gay men and gay women to be married. Why the hell not? Because Absolutely. it's about love. It's about the one individual choosing to love and want to spend their lives. Does the sexual orientation matter in that? Of course it doesn't. 
And, and the whole premise of that was based on two things. One, that the attraction was same-sex attraction, and that it wasn't some kind of choice. So we didn't get up in the morning and say, oh, do you know what? I think I shall be gay today, you know? And uh, no, the, 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 this, was, this was people whose identity was rooted in their biology who wanted to celebrate love in just the same way as everybody else wanted to celebrate it. Of course, they should be allowed be allowed to do that. But that succeeded. You went from Section 28 in 1988 under the Thatcher government through to another conservative government legalizing gay marriage. Yeah, and, and homosexuality was 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 uh, a crime in this in the was it sixty seven? Sixty seven, absolutely. And and in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, which is used by psychologists and psychiatrists, um, um, it was a mental disorder until nineteen seventy three. I mean, somebody joked that that in nineteen seventy three, homosexuality was no longer a mental disorder. So you know, hundreds of millions of people were cured overnight. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what you've got here is, is, is extraordinary levels of progress. But we talk now, and that's when, of course, the trans ideology came into it. Which, and, uh, but what we have now then is the sense that we made no progress at all. We've made no progress on, from the time when in 1895, you know, Oscar Wilde was imprisoned because of his homosexuality. Hard two years, hard labor. We've made no progress since the 1950s, you know, when... when uh, when uh, um, Alan Turing was, uh, yeah, Alan Turing was yeah. was uh, given a choice between um, chemical castration or imprisonment. Mm. I mean, it's insane. Of course, we've made progress. We are the most. This is the, we now have a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred genders floating about the internet. People are free to express themselves however they wish. They're free to associate wherever they want. But now that those who say for example, may use the wrong pronoun. We don't want to go down into this route in particular, but I'll give an example. Yeah, of, please know. Of what, of what, absolutely, of what's happening on Twitter is that is that, that that can lead to a shadow ban or indeed a ban on, on expression. And and there's a debate to be had there, right? And uh, and that you'd have to stretch things to call that hate, regardless of what your views are. Mm. And uh, so I think that, that what we're looking at here is an extension is, is prevalence induced concept change is an expansion of the concept of, of hate, an expansion of the concept of racism, an expansion of the concept of, uh, of you know, um, yeah, anti, you know, gay bias or, or anti whatever gender bias to the point where anybody gets caught in the trap. And of course, that's what you see. I, we started this conversation with the, the statue uh, of Confucius, statue of Confucius, you know, and but you could go back to the to the French Revolution. I mean, look what happened in the French Revolution. You know, by the by the time you're reaching 1794, you know, they're having to move the guillotines out of the city centre because the blood is contaminating well, the Yes, water. revolutions eat their children, don't they? Revolutions eat their eat their children, you know, and 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 uh, and and you, you had again an interesting point. Let's talk a bit about the figure of Robespierre. And let's look at the impulse of Robespierre. I mean, who was Robespierre? You know, he was a provincial lawyer, you know. And 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 he was he was you know described variously by various commentators as pale as fragile as as anxious you know and uh, but but having a, a preferential option for the poor if you want he he identified with the poor and and uh, and his sister described once he kept sparrows and pigeons and and once he he left I think some of his sparrows to be looked after by his sister and and one of them died and he was distraught. He was beside himself um, with uh, with with pain, you know, and and so he had a, a strong identification, you know, with the poor and and but this is a man who, by the 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 end of the revolution, of course, which of course in the end consumed him, uh, you know, people were being executed for making sour wine. They were being they were going to the guillotine in 1794 for sour wine. This, this is a man who lived by the principle of virtue without terror is disastrous and terror without virtue has no power. And, and so he took us all on towards the terror. Where do we think these prescriptions take us? Where do we think these assaults on free speech take us? We only need to look at the history books to find out where all this is going. It's not a mystery. We have thousands of years of history we can consult. We can go back to... You know, the, the another statue I talk in my book, the statue of Athena, which was destroyed in the in the in the in the fourth century by bands of 
Christians in the ancient city of Palmyra who came in from the desert. Then a, then a few years ago when ISIS similarly emerged from the desert, they destroyed the statue again. What was left of her, they beheaded it and, and, and destroyed it again. And eventually they took the extraordinary archaeologist, the, the Mr. Palmyra, as they um, as they used to as they used to to uh, call him, um, you know, Al-Assad, who 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 um, Khaled Kuram Al-Assad. Khaled, yeah, Khaled Al-Assad. Sorry, Khaled Al-Assad, yeah, our Al historical hero for the December issue. Yeah, yeah, I just written a historical hero piece for that. And they and 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 he refused. He saved many of the antiquities as ISIS were coming into one side of the city. He took these antiquities out of Palmyra and he took them out the other side. And But he stayed. He could have fled. He could have saved his skin. They won't want to harm an octogenarian archaeologist, he said, who'd lived all his life in Palmyra. Why would they want to hurt me? But they did. They tortured him. And when he wouldn't reveal where the antiquities were hidden, they let him go. Then they rearrested him and they tortured him again. And then they executed him. They beheaded him and hung his body from a Roman pillar and then moved it to a traffic light in the center of Palmyra and put his head between his legs with his glasses still on. And they put a placard around his neck, which said director of idolatry. This is this is terrifying. And 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 so when we and, and what we have uniquely now, you know, it's estimated that at the end of the, the collapse of the 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 Soviet Union, you know, in, in the in the Czech Republic, you know, maybe one in four people were informers. We see similar patterns in East Germany. We don't need informers anymore. The algorithms will do it for us. Everything is visible. And this, this for the first time in human history, in human history, allows dominant powers, whether they be dominant cultural powers or dominant political powers or tyrants, to have access to unparalleled amounts of information with minimal human intervention. And boy, do we have to be careful how we use that. Jack Dorsey about Twitter. Let's go back to the issue of Twitter. When Twitter was um, was uh, uh, you know, and Facebook were starting the you know, supporting the Arab Spring, what what did you know, Jack Dorsey call Twitter? He said, "We are the free speech wing." He said, "Of the free speech party." But did you watch that documentary that was on Netflix? It probably still is on Netflix. It's quite interesting. It's about the Jack Dorseys of this world, all the Silicon yeah. Valley executives yeah. who design these social media platforms. Yeah with the sort of al almost an altruistic uh, vision of, of how it would be, but that's not how it's ended up. As you say, it's, no, it's, it's not, it's not because, because essentially you see, and now I go back to another heroes of my book, really Christopher Boom, who's a, an anthropologist, American anthropologist. And, and, uh, and he, he's worked a lot with, he studied chimpanzees. He's studied hunter gatherers. He, he studied ancient, um, uh, 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 nomadic um, 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 societies, and 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 he finds certain things to be universal, you know. And uh, ethnocentrism is universal. You know, we always think we're the best tribe. We're better than the tribe next door. Um, raiding is universal. War is universal. And uh, and violence is universal. And dominance hierarchies are universal. And, and his way out of this, and which of course democracy is an example of this, he says, well, and so, so he says a reverse dominance hierarchy. So in other words, where the mass of people get together to cut the tall poppies down, to stop tyrants from emerging. Of course, that's, of course, the basis of liberal democracy. It's the basis of the you know, American constitution. It's the basis of, 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 of our societies is that, 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 that we need to protect society as a whole from the malevolence of those, which of course is in each of us, who, who would be tyrants. And uh, but what the algorithms and what this technologies now allow us to do, what big data in effect allows us to do is to in unprecedented ways aggregate this data. There's a wonderful book by uh, Shoshana Zuzov, which I recommend called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's a, it, I'll put it's, a link in the show notes. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fabulous book. And it's not a book about it, but it is a book about history in one sense. But really, it's simply a book about the future that we that we may face, you know, as as these technologies know more and more and more about us, you know, and 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 how much we will be willing to give them, and for so little in return, really. And and she asks the question in that book about 
information, she says, who knows, who decides, and who decides who decides. And, and, and those are the challenges that we face. And, and, and you have a tug of war, and you have tug of war, really, if you look at the United States, between two quite tyrannical sides. And, and I think Elon Musk is really trying to find some sort of middle ground here. You know, he is a lifelong Democrat who voted Republican at the last, um, uh, in the recent elections and recommended that people vote Republican. But he is no, although he's let Trump back on Twitter, um, he's no Trump supporter. And, uh, and, and his instincts are not Trumpian. But what he can see is we have two tyrannical ways of thinking here. We have the left that wants to shut, that, shut down its ever-expanding roster of hate speech. And we have the right, the far right, and, 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 the, and the, the MAGA movement that wants to storm the steps of the Capitol building. And he's trying to find, a, I guess, a liberal conservatism in that, where you, can, where you can find a middle ground, you know. And look how he's struggling, and look how rich he is. To give you an idea of how rich he is, if you and I say you say if you had earned a hundred thousand dollars a day every day since the birth of Jesus Christ, you would have less money than Elon Musk. <laughs> That's sobering, right? It, it um, is. And and you look at the struggle he is having. What the hell chance do lesser mortals have without his resources of combating these forces? Because and you saw it. And 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 the people in the midterms in the United States, there's no question, there's a movement away from if you put it in terms of parties from the democrats but people don't want trump trump is a chaos merchant he's a he's tyrannical and and he's deeply i think his ship sailed actually now i, I think, think his ship is absolute let's hope his ship is absolute yeah, yeah. and uh, but navalny people criticize um 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 you know uh, 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 elon musk for um uh, bringing trump back on twitter but navalny who is obviously currently in prison in putin's russia himself said the act of censorship censoring Donald Trump on Twitter was egregious. And uh, because he knows the price you pay, he knows where this road goes. Well, there may be some listeners who are not on Twitter. And I, I always took the view, and I, and I probably still do to some extent, it's just Twitter, okay? It's just a social media platform that you can make it as powerful as you want it to be, or you can make it as you know a, 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 an amusing diversion yeah so and i think there's some statistics out there or something that only 10 percent of people with a twitter login are actively using it and of that 10 percent, only 10 percent are actually posting messages yeah yeah so so are we in danger of exaggerating the importance of twitter uh the question you rise there about the twitter is is are we um, in danger of exaggerating the power of intolerant minorities. That is what you're, the question you're actually asking, because yeah. it's, it's not about Twitter, is we have intolerant minorities on the left and on the right. And, and what we, the question we have to ask ourselves is what power do they really have? And I'm arguing, and history tells us they have enormous power. Yeah. Enormous power. Um, I think, I think when you were last on, you mentioned a statistic that only, I think, something like, Two percent of a population can can change. Yeah, well, well, look, take a work environment as an example. The old myth in 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 social groups, in same working groups. Say you bring a bad apple. Somebody doesn't pull their weight in work and is a bit political and is divisive and is spiteful in the way he or she speaks, right? And uh, and you put them into a working environment. Oh, that's okay. The rest will lift them up. But that's not what happens. It's like a cancer, a poison. They pull the rest down. It's basic psychology. They pull the rest down. And, and so you only need a very small minority of people to be vociferously intolerant for the rest to go into silence. I know, as an, as an academic, I know academics who are in the field of, of psychology who will not teach certain things. I'll give examples. Um, biological differences between the sexes. Won't touch it. Evolutionary, some aspects of evolutionary psychology, that, in other words, our cognitive capacities are, and capabilities evolved as adaptations, either for survival or for, or for, reprodu or for reproduction. And, and, and you know, that the, this, these sort of link of our evolution to biology has become taboo, and they dare not speak it. I had one uh, lecturer who will remain nameless at a UK university who related this story to me. It was the beginning of term. 
and he was and uh, and he was about to give his first lecture and as he was walking into the lecture theater one of the students came up to him and said uh, excuse me sir i just want to know if i'm not happy to whom do i complain See, I have a theory that this is all down to tuition fees. Now, now students are customers as opposed to. Yeah, there's an argument for that. They're customers. But but also and, and this this is where this becomes, um, you know, really interesting, because going back to Peter Turchin's work, he says, when do you tend to get civil wars? He calls them fathers and son cycles. But but this is really quite from a psychological point of view and also from a point of view of history. He says civil wars tend to recur every third generation. Because the first generation, Peter, you know, now you're really depressed. <laughs> fought a war, then then the children know the price they pay for that. Yeah, and and they don't want to repeat it. But the grandchildren, you get a kind of amnesia, and and they and and people have no idea, no idea. Say what the civil rights movement. John Lewis, one of the 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 leaders of the civil rights movement in the United States, and he and he was arrested for having a one man one vote sign and he said without freedom of speech he said and the right to dissent the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings these people knew that because they came out of jim crow they came out of jim crow laws in the united states legal white supremacy jim crow laws they knew that the generation now who think who believe we're in stage four metastatic cancer when it comes to racism have no idea what that world looked like, nor can they in any way connect to it. And where do you get the greatest demand, the greatest censoriousness? Where is it? Let's go back to the Cultural Revolution. Where was it? It was at the elite schools. It was among school pupils and students at the most elite schools and colleges and universities. It wasn't the poor. Where do you get it now? Where is all this dissent coming from? Who was it who demonized people who refused to wear masks during COVID or refused to get vaccinated, Mo? It was the elites. It came out of the most elite universities, the most elite, you know, fee-paying schools in the United States. They are the most intolerant. So, okay, as, a, as, a, as an optimist, earlier you were, uh, I'm going to carry on fighting the good fight here. Yeah. Peter. yeah. Uh, earlier you were... Um, you were making the comment that no one is, and this is obviously correct. No, no one is fighting to get into China. No one's fighting to get in Russia. Yeah. In this country, we've got people who are willing to risk their lives in flimsy boats crossing a very dangerous narrow waterway. So, is that not in and itself show that our society is 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 something that's that is attractive to others? So, therefore, that that shows in itself it is strong. Oh. Of course, it's strong. So I, we can resist. You. So we can resist some of these elites who are uh, causing trouble. Well, let, let, let's take this one step at a time. Of course, our traditions are strong. I mean, English common law, for example, is one of the miracles of human civilization. Nobody sat down and said, "Right, all of you, listen. These are all the laws." I mean, if you compare that, for example, to to you know Robespierre, you know, famously, you know, famously saying that the people must be instructed. They must be told. And we've got to prescribe those writers who are enemies of the revolution. No. Where does common law happen? It happens by precedent. It comes from the bottom up. It's by custom. It's by precedent. It's remarkable. And you see these type of ideas in the work of thinkers like, for example, Edmund Burke, which is a celebration of these type of traditions. And, 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 and it's, 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 uh, it's a remarkable. But it is extraordinarily fragile. So, of course, we've taken all these ideas, all these ideas all over the world. And we've done it with extraordinary success. In 1897, in the Seychelles, Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria, what happened? Thousands of freed slaves who had been freed because the Royal Navy had risked their lives and rescued them from, say, Portuguese and, and Arab slave ships. They'd freed them. And many of our own sailors died doing that. And these freed African slaves walked voluntarily with a Union Jack in front of them to celebrate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, saying, this is the flag that sets us free. This is remarkable. We have an extraordinary tradition of tolerance. And while, you know, Africans were, were attempting to, to, to well, and were still enslaving other Africans and selling them on to, to, to European and Arab slave traders, the British were busily trying to stop this. So we have a huge tradition of tolerance 
And, uh, and yes, of course, in any imperial story, there will be bloodbaths. There will be terrible things that we did. We have to acknowledge that. But in my view, if you look at the history of our civilization, of our legal system, of our values, of openness and tolerance and pluralism, they far outweigh any negatives. And, and, and that's why that happened. That's why those freed slaves called the Union Jack, the, the, the flag that, 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 that sets us free. And, and, and I think we forget this, our perils. Of course, people want to come to this country. But it's not what this country is now, but where is it headed is the point. And unless we remember, and going back to Turchin's Fathers and Sun Cycles, unless we really remember this history and remember the people who gave their lives so that we could speak freely, who gave their lives so that people who want to mar get married, regardless of their sexual orientation, could, could do so. Of course, that wasn't happening in 1850, but that's the trajectory. It's those values, it's those actions that gave our values the energy to become ever more liberal, ever more tolerant. But the risk we run is that freedom, as Plato predicted in the Republic two and a half thousand years ago, consumes itself. Democracy always yields, yields in Plato's view, to tyranny. We get tired of our freedom and then people complain they don't have freedom enough. And, and then they, they, they grasp the hand of the first tyrant that comes their way. And, and, and the platonic lesson here is very pertinent to us because he, he was Plato obviously was no Democrat. He could see the, the risks of democracy. And that's a risk we're running. So that people are coming here is testament to what it is we have built. But what it is we are becoming, we should be mindful, going back to the start of this conversation, of the Chinese Association in, in, in Greater New York, who, who said, we are having another Maoist revolution in the United States, and it's not good. And we've seen this before, and we do not want to see it again. And, and at the vanguard of that revolution, obviously, you have big tech and how big tech feeds itself. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy called James Burnham. He wrote a book in 1940 called The Managerial Revolution. I'm not very influential on George Orwell, funny enough. And George Orwell wrote a rebuttal of it, but it influenced uh, influenced uh, um, him greatly. And, and, and the basic gist of what Burnham's saying is that our civilization will become tyrannical through a managerial revolution, too many managers. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and, it's, it's, and, it's... and we can see it going that way, right? It's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's where the world ends and they're all management consultants. Yeah, but absolutely right. But let's look at, at, uh, at a bit of naval history. Between 1914 and 1928, the number of ships in the Admiralty uh, being built declined by about, you know, 70%. But the number of administrators and officials increased by roughly the same amount. So how do you need, how can ships decline, manufacturing decline by 70%? But the number of bureaucrats increases by the same percentage. The number of low-level clerks increased by 40%. What the hell are they doing? And we're finding this now with Twitter. Elon Musk's got rid of, what, 3,500 people? What were those people doing? The platform seems to be functioning okay. Time, of course, will tell. What the hell were they doing? What the hell were they doing? In some American universities now, you have one administrator for every student. So we are feeding a bureaucracy or rather the function of any and, and, and a guy called Cyril Northcote Parkinson came up with Parkinson's law. And he said the function of any bureaucracy is to feed itself. He called, and one of the laws he invented was the law of the multiplication of subordinates. The bureaucrats just feed themselves. They don't feed what it is they're supposed to be serving. So when Douglas Murray, I always disagreed with Douglas Murray on this point. He always used to sit down and say, well, all these people with all this all these progressive views, they'll, they'll, when they go into the real world, when they go into the real world, their views will change. But of course not. What happened was it wasn't their views changed, but the real world changed. The corporations changed because these people came into positions of cultural and political power within those organizations and changed them from within. Which goes to Arnold Toynbee's point. He said civilizations commit suicide. And and what we are watching now is is the is the is the suicide of the West, and uh, and it is insane. So all these extraordinary things that we have created, it's not over. We still have hope, because the fact that we are having this discussion, the fact that there are millions of people having similar discussions, the fact that people are becoming more emboldened, the fact that the rate of cancellation and denunciation reaches a tipping point where people think this is wrong. When ordinary people get carted over the coals for simply saying a word or a phrase out of place without knowing what it means. You know, people are pushing back and that's the hope we have. We have to keep fighting. 
And we have to remember what got us here and not as going back to Turkin's fathers and sun cycles, not descend into a civil war and allow intra elite competition to take us all down with it. Well, Peter, that's um, that's a good way to end it. Not ending in civil war. Um, there was uh, I detected uh, a hint of hope in that we, you know, we have reached where we are as a society through hundreds of years of of institutions and 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 beliefs that have have been created by clever men and women um so hopefully we're at a stage now well let me make one final point on this and i will I'll just make one final point to close this off there was a a brilliant brilliant book written by the french historian called georges lefebvre which your, your listeners i'm sure will be familiar with and it was called the great fear and uh, and the great fear was was about a, a rural panic, really, between the 22nd of July and the 6th of August in 1789, where there was a fear that there, there would be some attempt by the deposed aristocrats to come back and and crush the revolution and and, and destroy crops in the countryside and whatever. And and and, and at the beginning of this book, um, 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 Georges Lefebvre has a map and you know, like a weather map when you see how the wind goes round and it's got arrows. And, and it's like that, a map of France. And you've got these arrows. And what you're seeing there is this circulation of fear. It's extraordinary. I, I, just look at everybody should look at that map. Oh, I'll put a link in. And and Lefebvre says in, in the chapter, and he describes the fear moving through the French countryside, almost like a novelist would. He'll say things like, you know, but at 6 p.m., the great fear arrived in the town square. And, and, and slowly it expanded and spread through the population. It was hoped it would not make its way d- down the valley and across the nearby mountain. But by 11 a.m. the following day, it had arrived there too. I mean, it's just brilliantly written. And he's talking about the fear. And, 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 and when people get scared, scared for their future, but more importantly, scared for their identity, scared that their status in the terms of elites might be being eroded, they will let that fear drive their behavior. We must not... We must not. The key, if we have to have hope, we must not let fear drive our behavior. And we must be tolerant of those who disagree with us. When Ujuanya says she wants the queen to die in unspeakable agony, we must respect her right to say that. I and, uh, and, uh, and I think that's perhaps where we, where we find hope. Peter Hughes, thank you very much. So we end on a positive note there. And this is the last podcast of 2022 and we're into a new year and I do hope you all have a successful 2023. If you can subscribe, rate or review, I'd be enormously grateful. Happy New Year. Thank you and good night.